This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey there, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast Best Bits from Tuesday, November the 8th. Coming up, we're going to be hearing from Nashat Abdul Hadi. Nashat is from LinkedIn, head of comms for the Emir region for LinkedIn. They've just released a new piece of research which addresses pandemic progress, or rather the slowing down of pandemic progress because of the economic uncertainties. A number of senior executives are being faced with tough decisions when it comes to workforce and workplace culture. We got the latest from Najat on that one. Plus, Brandy Scott's been live down at COP27 since the beginning of the week today. She caught up with Her Royal Highness Princess Abzi Jigma of Burkina Faso, who's been a regular attendee at recent COP events, and says that this time it is essential that countries start to walk the walk after plenty of talk. Midterms also underway over in the United States. Obviously, we'll have more on this throughout the course of this week. But we uh, caught up with Professor Adam Ramey of NYU Abu Dhabi to talk about the significance of the midterms, not just for the United States, but also for countries like the UAE. Why should people in the UAE be concerned about what happens at the midterms? In fact, the US midterms and the potential consequences were part and parcel of the wider conversation throughout the morning. And we caught up with Kashif Khalid as well. Kashif, bringing us all the latest developments and numbers from IATA as air passenger traffic continues to rise across the region. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Brandy Scott is not here. She is in Egypt. She's at Sharm el-Sheikh. She is there for the COP27 meeting. And this is our unofficial COP27 anthem. Hello, Wegs. Wegs currently top of the Spotify charts in Egypt with that song at the moment. Look, there's a lot going on. At COP27, we just heard from Serena Kelly a few moments ago. We're hearing from UAE President Tizana Sheikh Mohammed. Brandy's been speaking to a number of people down there. Her Highness Thomas, Princess Abzi Jigma of Burkina Faso, was chatting with Brandy Scott over the past 24 hours or so. And Brandy began by asking her about the weight that this particular meeting carried. This COP is important because... Now it's about implementation. We are moving from process to implementation. Solutions are out there. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Just need to find the right people to put them at the right place with the right financing. Which is all well and good, but Brandy asked her, so where is the world at the moment in terms of the promises that have been made at previous COPs? Glasgow, Paris, for example, is enough actually happening? For me, there is. you have some countries who does the jobs. You have some who are waiting to be kicked more to do so. But Africa is there saying, listen, we need to get out of talking, talking and actually implementing on the field. We do have youth who are well trained. We have women on the front liners who knows what to do. We have the business who knows who also have solutions, who knows what to do. So we just need to bring all those people and move to the green economy. We don't have a choice. We just got to do it. 
That is the voice of Her Royal Highness speaking to Brandy Scott's Princess Abzi Jigma of Burkina Faso. Full interview coming up just after 8.30 this morning and much more coverage from COP27 as well from Brandy Scott. Producer Shrita Regenda and also there on the ground in Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, what else have we got? It's a big day in the United States, Tom. It's election day. Hello, Tom. You're on midterm election countdown, aren't you? How long now until the polls open in Ohio? Yeah, didn't they say? That, uh, yeah, I think it was. It's around about eight and a half hours away now, uh, or maybe eight hours away now um, from the first of the polls. But already plenty of chat at the moment. Look, really important for the Democrats here. Um, bit of a nightmare scenario for them uh, at present. Uh, a lot on the line, as it were. Um, for the Rep- Republicans. <sighs> A bit of a it's almost like a sort of referendum isn't it it's 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 almost like a sort of halfway house where you get the opportunity to see okay just how good has joe been for the first half of his presidency uh, and the republicans i think are certainly licking their lips in anticipation because uh, a bad night for the democrats could be um a nightmare scenario for them moving forward because at the moment the democrats have got all three haven't they yeah. they've got the white house They've got the House of Representatives and they've got the Senate, which makes policymaking relatively straightforward. Most people you speak to, most pollsters say that that will not be the case in 48 hours' time. Yeah, exactly that. So that's why I think it's generating so much interest and why we are going to be focusing on it over the next 48 hours, despite a lot of people tuning in going, why are we... (laughs) Focusing on the midterms, because, as you rightly say, it's it's the world's largest economy. Um, it's where a lot of uh, the stories have been generated and it will have an impact or could potentially have an impact on, on dollar, which therefore has an impact on others. And that is exactly the question we put to Ed Bell. He's Senior Director Market Economics at Emirates MBD. Economically, Ed, what are the big issues in the US midterms? Midterm elections have historically served as a referendum on the incumbent president, particularly their stewardship of the U.S. economy. And this year's, which starts today, looks very much like it is going to be a direct vote on how Joe Biden is managing the uh, U.S. economy at a time when growth is slowing, interest rates are moving up very rapidly, and inflation is near historic highs. In terms of the big economic numbers to look out for, really the story is still all about inflation in the United States. Yes, the headline CPI number has started to move lower, but it's still at 8.2%, the highest level in decades. And then when we move the analysis beyond just price pressures, there are signs that growth is slowing. If we look at, say, uh, PMI numbers for the United States, particularly for the services index, sort of the end of 2021, the ISM non-manufacturing index was at more than 60 and now is just holding above 54. So there is a tremendous slowdown underway in the U.S. economy. 
the the housing market is also showing signs of creaking and slowing under the weight of interest rate hikes. So it all in all, it is a economy poised to tip into something much, much slower. We're just waiting for the shoe to drop in the labor market. So I think these will be the big issues that voters are concerned about when they go to the polls in the US today. Professor, uh, that's Ed Bell of Emirates MBD. Professor Adam Ramey of New York University Abu Dhabi is standing by joining us on the line on Microsoft Teams in about 10 minutes time. Right then, Serena Kelly's with us in the studio. Brady Scott and the President, Sheikh Mohammed, are in Egypt. That's right. Yes, they are. Uh, the UAE's President, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Nahyan, has called for unifying global efforts to face the challenges of climate change. So speaking through a translator here, His Highness addressed world leaders at the summit in Egypt. Here we are gathered today at a critical moment for our planet. Our world is facing intricate and complex challenges, including climate change, which has become so impactful on stability and security around the world. And since we only have one planet, it is essential that we bring together our efforts in order to address this challenge by engaging in climate action which we see as an opportunity for innovation, for solution-making and economic diversity. He went on. His Highness also spoke of the UAE's position as a responsible energy provider. Well, oil and gas, ladies and gentlemen, in the UAE, in the UAE is among the least carbon-intensive oil and gas around the world. And we will focus on lowering carbon emissions emanating from this sector. He went on from there to highlight recent initiatives. We spoke about the partnership for accelerating clean energy agreement that was signed with the United States recently. Uh, the UA president met with a number of heads of state and officials on the sidelines of the summit. Israeli president Isaac Herzog, the president of Senegal, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the IMF managing director Kristalina Gorgieva. Meanwhile, he also met with Pakistani Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif, who thanked the leadership, the people of the UAE for their generous assistance during the recent floods of this year. Pakistan trying to recover from catastrophic floods that have cost the country some 30 billion US dollars. And just at the start of the month, we mentioned how the UAE dispatched ships carrying 200 containers of food and medical supplies. Those arrived in Karachi to benefit more than 500,000 families. Uh, the UAE, one of among the first countries to help Pakistan through the crisis, dispatching an air bridge consisting of 62 planes as well. But generally, uh, discussions with other leaders centred on the importance of international cooperation collaboration to find practical climate change solutions that enable sustainable development for all. Um, but he also toured the exhibitions and visited various pavilions, including the UAE. So if Brandy gets over to the UAE pavilion, she might just run into him. Yeah, well, I was listening to the, the, the list of people that you rattled off yeah. that he met there. He, he doesn't quite have the waster to meet up with Brandy Scott, but... <laughs> But if you're listening, your highness, we, yes. we could we could maybe put a call in. We could arrange that for you, no problem. I don't know, no, no promises, but we'll, <laughs> we'll do what we can. Serena Kelly, thanks very much indeed. More details on the Air and New Centre app. Right then, talking aviation now, delighted to be joined on the line by Kashif Khalid, Regional Director for the Middle East and Africa at IATA, the global trade body for the aviation industry. Kashif, good morning, thanks for being with us. 
Good morning. Strong growth in demand for air travel, according to your latest report. What do we know? So air travel in September uh, rose nearly 57% compared to September 2021 levels. So now we're at almost 74% of uh, pre-pandemic levels, which was measured in uh, September 2019, which is a good sign because we've been saying that traffic recovery will take place by the year 2022, 2023, and that 24% that's still left for us to go back to pre-pandemic levels is a result of China still having a zero tolerance policy. But globally, traffic numbers are extremely strong in the Middle East, uh, performing quite well compared to uh, global peers. Okay, so let, let's, can, can we be quite narrow and regional? First of all, Middle East passenger traffic compared to pre-pandemic levels, where do we stand? So for the Middle East exclusive compared to uh, pre-pandemic levels, I would say we're close to the 92-94% mark. This is my estimate based on our numbers that we've had. Just for the month of September, we've posted a nearly 150% traffic rise compared to September 2021. This is a result of airlines adding additional frequency, most airlines uh, restoring their uh, network that used to exist post-pandemic, but also a lot of new airlines serving the region, uh, especially for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but also the domiciled airlines in the UAE uh, aggressively expanding their network and adding new destinations, such as what Arabia and Fly Dubai have recently done. So in terms of of the capacity to handle this demand, anecdotally, most of us, when we're booking flights, are looking at the prices and going, wow, that's expensive at the moment. Is the capacity there to handle this demand, Kashiv? Absolutely. So if we look at capacity, uh, the industry added around 64% uh, additional capacity compared to a year ago. And load factors have climbed nearly 30% to about 80% for most of the operators in the region. And you're absolutely right that the cost of air travel has gone up. But we are in uh, challenging economic times with high inflation, high oil prices, and conflicts in uh, Eastern Europe, which are adding to the operational costs, but also labor shortages as well, which are affecting a lot of airlines and their network. Luckily, we're incubated in the Middle East, and especially the UAE, where the airports and airlines do a fantastic job at managing that growth. So there is additional capacity, but there are external economic pressures affecting the aviation industry. We got the, the bones from Kashiv there. The number that stood out to me, that jumped out to me, Tom, 92% of pre-pandemic capacity or or pre-pandemic traffic here in the Middle East. We're pretty much back, aren't we? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, that's that certainly seems to be what's happening. I mean, flying is very is obviously different than it was pre-pandemic. Um, you mentioned their higher fares. You mentioned busier planes. There are still fewer routes out there at the moment as airlines struggle to uh, staff up in terms of not just pilots but crew uh, and on-ground um, uh, personnel as well. Um, So the experience is different, um, but certainly in terms of numbers, they're not dying. And, you know, I I would expect to see that in in, in an area like this where there are several hubs. And as you mentioned, we're, you know, likely to see more hubs developing here. It's interesting that, I mean, sticking with aviation, looking at numbers coming out, we're starting to get a few earnings um, coming through and numbers coming through from other airlines. Um, Ryanair 
some amazing numbers uh, really? overnight. Yeah, record passenger numbers in the second quarter. High affairs have resulted in profit of 1.37 billion euros for the first half of the 2023 financial year for them. Numbers are better than pre-pandemic. Profits have increased from 1.15 billion in the first uh, in the first half of the year before the pandemic hit, and passenger numbers hit 95.1 million um, in the second quarter of this financial year, up from the 85.7. So. And that's actually prompted um, the boss of Ryanair, who's been very outspoken about uh, aviation and saying, you know, it's all gone and forget your 99 euro flights ever again, etc. Or the one euro flights, whatever it was, um, has said he's really surprised by the fact that they've done amazing numbers. But therein lies the demand. So it's not just that traffic is back, but they're also making money. Yeah. Yeah, back back in profit, Ryanair, you know, low-cost carrier. We've thought they were the ones that are going to get hit hardest. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. It is, of course, a very big day in the United States. I hopped up the plane at LAX with a dream my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame access. Am I going to fit in? Jumped in the cab, here I am for the first time. Party in the USA, it is the midterm elections. Joining us on the line from the nation's capital, our nation's capital, Abu Dhabi, Professor Adam Ramey, Associate Professor of Political Science at New York University, Abu Dhabi. Professor Ramey, thank you very much indeed for being with us. Great to be with you. So, the question we're asking this morning, because we're here in the UAE, so selfishly we care about us. Why do we care about the midterms in the United States. And bear in mind, we are the business breakfast, so we mainly have a business and economic slant on this. Well, I mean, there's a number of reasons. I think, obviously, the economy. It's the economy, stupid, as James Carville famously said in 1992. Um, global markets have been sort of teetering uh, over the last several months. Um, you know, are we going into a recession? Are we in a recession? Is a recession ahead? And I think that stability in Washington is certainly one thing that uh, the investors are going to be looking at. Um, the Republicans seem poised at this point to win control of the House of Representatives. I think the only question is going to be by how much. Um, and a Republican-controlled House of Representatives and possibly Senate, though that one's a bit dicier, um, could be in lock, uh, could lock horns with the Biden administration, which could actually create problems with things like raising the debt ceiling, um, and reduce, thereby reducing investor confidence. So, you know, it's a, a bit of a mixed bag, if I'm being completely honest. So if we take a step back and do midterm elections 101, there'll be people sitting on their sofas watching this at home or driving to work this morning thinking, what are the US midterm elections? Every four years, the US elects a president. We know that, fine. But what are these, what are these midterm things we're talking about? So, you know, the U.S. Congress gets uh, the House of Representatives gets reelected every two years and the Senate every six, but they stagger uh, terms so that there's always Senate elections somewhere going on. And so the president has a four year term. So halfway through, it's the midterm. And typically in the midterm elections, uh, at least going back to World War Two, the president's party usually gets clobbered. Um, how bad it is usually depends on how unpopular the president is at the time. And the reason for it is pretty simple. Um, people uh, who don't like the president tend to come up in higher numbers. 
Um, and usually the president's supporters usually are lukewarm by two years into the presidency because they haven't done as much as, as people would have wanted. And so I think based on those historical trends, all but two midterm elections since World War II have resulted in the president's party losing seats. And with President Biden's approval rating in the low 40s, I think the, the fundamentals just point toward uh, a, a pretty bad day for Democrats, if I'm being honest. So what about economic policy? Well, I mean, Republicans are, are hammering home the message of inflation, inflation, inflation. In fact, that's the central point of, of, of everything that they're, uh, they're arguing. They're arguing the Biden administration's uh, stimulus packages, their forgiveness package for student loans, and all the spending that, that, that the administration has proposed and continues to propose going forward as part of the Debt Reduction Act um, are creating problems uh, for everyday Americans. Uh, the Biden administration is trying to pitch it as, as, as a good thing. Um, they, in fact, um, Social Security, which is the main safety net for senior citizens in the United States, the Biden administration is saying, well, senior citizens are now getting the biggest paychecks ever from Social Security. And Republicans are responding by saying, well, it's only because of inflation. Um, and so I think right now it's, it's really a battle over what to do. Republicans are going to want to tighten the belt a little bit more uh, as, as they have a tendency to do, especially when they're in the opposition party. Um, and I think that if they do manage to get control of the House, which all signs point toward that outcome happening, we're going to see a drastic amount of reduction in the, the amount of spending that's coming out of Washington. OK, well, that that would be significant. Can I ask you what your thoughts were on the phone call that we had, the video call a couple of days ago, between the President of the United States, Joe Biden, and the President here, His uh, Highness the President, Sheikh Mohammed. They had a phone call mainly about energy issues. They discussed the $100 billion green energy plan. They talked about energy security as well. What were your takeaways? Well, I mean, the Biden administration has been trying to to dance a, a, an odd line. On the one hand, trying to maintain strong ties with with the Gulf partners here, especially the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but on the other side, voices within the Democratic Party have become increasingly vocal and critical of of high uh, gas prices um, that that have been supported by uh, by the UAE and, and and Saudi. And as consequence, many of them have argued for um, punishing. Uh, the UAE and Saudi in, the, in, in terms of selling of, of planes and other military hardware and of sort of rethinking strategically our, our plans. I think the Biden administration is, is smart enough to know that it's in the interest of the United States, just as it's in the interest of the UAE to maintain close personal ties, especially as our, Iran marches its way uh, toward uh, uh, nuclear uh, technology. Um, but I don't know. I, th I think that depending on what happens when when the elections are, are all said and done, um, we might have a Congress that's more hostile toward the president. I think so far, both um, there's been voices of, of opposition, but among both uh, among Democrats, at least there's been sort of at least a begrudging support of what the Biden administration is doing. But I think with Congress set to take uh, to be controlled by the op the opposing party, I think even some Democrats who have been silent or have been not as vocal as they perhaps wanted to be, uh, might start to raise some fusses. Uh, I personally hope that that doesn't happen. I think it's in the U.S. strategic interest to continue to uh, to maintain strong uh, ties with the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia. Um, but, uh, but, but those are some fears that I see on the horizon. Uh, finally, Professor Ramey, it all kicks off in about, what, eight hours' time, the elections. How's it going to unfold over the, the next 24 hours or so? Well, I think that one of the things that and we saw this back in 2020 that what we're certainly going to see is it's unlikely that many of the races, many of the really close races, we're going to know the result 
uh, by the time we uh, wake up tomorrow morning. I mean, the reality is uh, huge numbers of Americans are voting uh, early, voting by mail, and those ballots are going to take a long time to count, and especially in close races, they, those can make the difference. That being said, I think that the, the House of Representatives, the Republicans only need 1230, and, and, and they're, they're pretty close. Um, and, and so I think the Republicans are probably set to gain 20 to 30 seats. Could be as close to 30, though the polls are kind of all over the place. Um, the Senate is a little bit tougher. Um, the Republicans would generally have been favored, but uh, there's been a couple of um, candidates who are not performing quite as well as, 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 as Republican leaders would have hoped. That being said, I think that the Republicans are going to do no worse than, than a 50-50 Senate, but quite possibly uh, pick up a majority there, too. So I think the Republicans overall are, are, are going to have a pretty good night. Uh, and I wouldn't surprise to see, be surprised to see a lot of Democratic uh, infighting as a consequence afterwards. Um, and, and, and questions about Biden's administration to effectively govern going forward. I mean, his age has already been an issue in, 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 in the previous campaign. Professor Ramey, we're going to have to leave it there. Great talking to you. That is Professor Adam Ramey of New York University, Abu Dhabi. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. COP27 summit kicked off Sunday in Egypt. Nearly 200 countries struggling to outpace increasingly dire climate impacts in a world appended by war and economic turmoil. So let's cross to Sharm al-Sheikh now, where Brandy has been speaking to Her Royal Highness Princess Abzijigma of Burkina Faso. Now, this is the fifth climate change conference that the princess has attended. Brandy began by asking her about the weight that this particular meeting carried. This COP is important because now it's about implementation. We are moving from process to implementation. Solutions are out there. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Just need to find the right people to put them at the right place with the right financing. So let's dig into all of those things. Where is the world in the, at the moment in terms of the promises that have been made in Glasgow and in Paris? Do you feel that enough is actually happening? For me, there is. you have some countries who does the jobs. You have some who are waiting to be kicked more to do so. But Africa is there saying, listen, we need to get out of talking, talking, and actually implementing on the field. We do have youth who are well-trained. We have women on the frontliners who knows what to do. We have the business who knows, who also have solutions, who knows what to do. So we just need to bring all those people and move to the green economy. We don't have a choice. We just got to do it. Talk to me about the finance. One of the big issues of this COP is going to be loss and damage, isn't it? Are we seeing the money come through? But I think the willingness is there with the Santiago Network on loss and damages. So, but let's see if the, uh, the countries will put their money where their mouths in. That, that, that is the entire thing. One is to talk about, but what it comes to really put the, the hand in the pocket and uh, put the fee in, so that's where the bottlenecks are. And I hope that for, for us, for instance, um, uh, in Africa, we would like, and that's what I'm uh, uh, working on with youth and the ministries, is to use our assets, which is our grants, which is our minerals, which is our mines, has an underlying guarantee, because uh, we, have, we do have a carbon credit, but we can use part of it as an as a, as a underlying guarantee, and problem solved. So, you know, solutions are there. I say it, so let us do that. So anybody who wants to use 
those assets to move along is more than welcome with us to do so. You've been at every yes. COP mm -hmm. since Paris. Yes. Do the, the stakes in terms of the environment that we're operating in, and I mean financial, I mean uh, inflation, I mean fear about recession, war, does it make it feel harder this time? I think that this time um, nobody ignore what is going on in geopolitics and the war in Ukraine and, and so on on the package goes beyond. It will be more difficult because it's human as well. If, uh, um, if there is recessions, people will look internally first before looking outside. I think that that's what is important again, I come in, that we need to count on our own resources as countries, as least developed countries, and also find a way how we are going to also um, measure the, the assets. Because GDP, actually, if, if I take the GDP, of course, my country, Burkina Faso, is behind. But if I'm looking to measuring uh, what, what my country has in his, on his, uh, under his feet, it's richer. So how are we going to, to, again, use that and leverage money into the financial market? I think it's a mind shift. We need really to come to that. So actually, it's, uh, it's in my interest and the interest of private sector to, to move along together on that innovative way of thinking to find, to find finance, because if you finance me, you will have part of my asset, and then also grow your business. The, the pie will be bigger, so then everyone will have a share, and then everyone, they, we, we will reduce drastic, drastically uh, the poverty, because it's about poverty reduction, it's about giving the economic power to, to the youth and, to, and uh, the women that we're talking about. If we really want to empower me, I need a job. I need to be trained. I need to get access to market. I need to be considered with my, with my capacities, but not seeing me as a poor thing who don't know anything, but it's knowledgeable. Just to tell you something, just uh, to quote my daughter who say, yeah, well, when a white person who is knowledgeable goes into this developing country, it's called expat. But you, mom, you're knowledgeable, and you have been working in the Western, in the Western but you still call a migrant. So, but we need also to have that mind shift. The issues between the developed and the developing world yes. will be centre stage this COP. What do you make of the argument that the developed world has had decades to exploit fossil fuels, and the developing world is now being told not to use those resources for the sake of the planet? Yeah, but I think that is, uh, as such, we need, of course, as developing countries to be authorized to get access to the financial market to grow our economies. But if it's on one hand, we don't get access to that finance, and on the other hand, we're being locked uh, by saying, well, you shouldn't use your fossil resources, where are we going to? So at some point, we need to figure out how we're going to solve that dilemma. But, and that the proposal is, let us access, access to the financial market at the right rate. Because I can borrow at a uh, 10, 20% and grow my economy. With the short term, I need also a long term uh, um, uh, finance that will allow me, for instance, like the UK, to pay within 150 years. But 
Me and my country, Burkina Faso, I don't have that. But you see that it's unbalanced. The moment that we also got access to long-term finance, then the problem will already solve 80% of the problem. Wow! How do you follow that? <laughs> Royal Highness Princess Abzi Jigma of Burkina Faso talking with Brandy Scott at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. She's brilliant. Good spokesperson. <laughs> wow. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We have got some new figures, some new data, data uh, out from LinkedIn. LinkedIn study, which looks at uh, flexible working uh, and finds that about 68% of business leaders globally believe that progress made on flexible working during the COVID-19 pandemic is now at risk as companies navigate economic uncertainty. Uh, if you bring that back home here to uh, the region, uh, it also shows that there is a higher percentage uh, of UAE-based companies that are uh, looking to make amends to the new ways of working, executives being forced to take tough choices that threaten recent progress around certain skills development. Let's get some more details on this one. Head of comms, uh, growth markets, EMEA at LinkedIn is... Is Najat Abdul Hadi, who's been kind enough to join us live on the line and happy to say live via Microsoft Teams. Najat, thanks for your time this morning. Hi, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Let's get a little bit more on this one because there's a few um, phrases that I, I think need a little bit of definition. So, first and foremost, pandemic progress, a new one for me. How do we sort of quantify pandemic progress? We are using the phrase to uh, describe all the flexible working measures that um, were adopted by companies to give employees more freedoms. Uh, because in the era of what we call the great reshuffle, employees were rethinking not just how and where they work, but why. And we saw employers respond to that by giving employees the flexibility to work where they think they are most productive. We have and continue to uh, look at this as progress. And what we're saying now is that the economic uncertainty we are witnessing is threatening to backtrack that. It is. It makes really interesting research. And thank you very much indeed for, 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 for conducting the research as well. I mean, lots of numbers for us to crunch here. 75% of business leaders worried uh, that it will affect uh, employee well-being. 74% concerned about skills development. 68% saying it will weigh on flexible work arrangements. Uh, we won't have enough time to go through all of the findings, all of the numbers. But Nasha, what would you say are the sort of biggest takeaways from this research? That's a very good question. Um, I think the thing that jumped out at me the most was the contrast or the conflict that I think C-suite uh, population, who is our target audience in this study, um, is going through. So they do recognize that flexible working has a lot of benefits for employees. In fact, almost three quarters of them say that they expect flexible working to last for at least the next five years. Um, they are saying that they feel guilty if they have to reduce it. At the same time, a big percentage of them, almost two thirds are saying that they are reducing it. So I think there is some sort of conflict that we're seeing emerging from the great reshuffle into the great uncertainty certainty. It's now up to C-suite and executives and managers to navigate it in a way that ensures their employees still feel that they belong, still feel that they're loyal to the company. Because at the end of the day, people are the, a company's most valuable asset, and you do want to retain them until we emerge from this um, uncertainty. 
It's a really interesting point. It sort of leads me nicely on to my next question. Uh, Richard and I here in the studio talking all things Democratic and Republican because of the midterms of America at the moment. But in terms of company management, in terms of getting people back into the office or being a little bit more flexible and allowing them to work from home, are we seeing a change in this sort of democratic versus autocratic approach to management, given the economic uncertainties? We are. Interestingly, in the UAE, over 60% of the the C-suite executives we surveyed said that they value uh, a democratic style of management, which is almost 10 uh, percentile points higher than the global average. This is a really good indicator because in these times, in times of crisis, um, executives tend to be more autocratic. They want to take fast decisions. A lot of the times they are reactive decisions uh, that impact their employees without uh, a two-way communication to make sure that they're consulting, they're listening, the voice of employees is is there on the table. In the UAE, there is obviously a recognition of that. And that's, as I said, is a very good sign because um, right now, clarity and trust are crucial to navigate through these times Mm. together. And we all know that during these tough times, you get uncertainty and uncertainty can breed a lack of motivation within workforces. Um, We know that retention has been a big issue uh, for uh, companies here in the region, as it has globally in recent times. In terms of keeping your workforce motivated at the moment, what are leaders resorting to? So our recommendation would be to uh, hold on to flexibility. If anything uh, became clear during the pandemic, it's that productivity didn't go down when you gave people the freedom to work where they felt most comfortable. Um, They did well and productivity did not go down. So we urge leaders to hold on to that flexibility also to keep the workforce agile, resilient and diverse. Um, What we are seeing is that even though executives are backtracking on flexibility, however, they are trying to um, make amends in other areas such as internal mobility. So this is a quick win that uh, executives can look at to keep the workforce morale high or the opportunity that they give to their employees to apply to other positions within the same organization. Skill development is another big one as well. Um, Upskilling, reskilling are very valuable and employees coming out of the pandemic recognize how valuable they are. So if you continue to invest in that area, you're also uh, contributing to keeping your employees morale high. And what sort of skills are business leaders looking for at the moment from their workforce? Are they changing in light of the economic tough times? They are changing in general. So um, we do have some stats from LinkedIn. Over the last seven years, skills uh, globally have changed around 25% uh, across all sectors, all industries. In the UAE, the figure um, hovers around 28%. This is a, a really good indicator of how much focus should be on skills. Um, What types of skills? I think it depends on the sector, on the industry, but in general, digital is king across all industries. And this trend has been accelerated by the pandemic, obviously, when people needed to get more techie, more virtual, and it doesn't look like it's a trend that's going to disappear anytime soon. And we heard about the importance of emotional skills during the pandemic as well. Has that trend continued? 
Yes, it has, especially for the uh, population that we're talking about today, executives and C-suites. Uh, soft skills continue to be very important, um, such as communication, um, emotional uh, intelligence, empathy. These skills, in fact, are making their way to drop postings on LinkedIn, and we're seeing about a 40% hike uh, in their mentions on job postings globally on LinkedIn. So again, soft skills, we've been talking about them for years, but they have gained... Um, renewed importance during the pandemic and now during uncertain times again they're making a comeback so they're very important for leaders to keep in mind it's a great piece of research uh, thoroughly uh, uh, enjoyed going through it so thank you so much indeed for your time as well this morning Naja. gonna have to leave it there on this occasion would encourage everyone uh, to get their hands on a copy of this latest research from linkedin Najat abdul hadi is the head of communications growth markets for the emir region at linkedin kind of Najat to join us live on the line to talk all things pandemic progress in the workplace. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.